0: I was was lost But now I'm found Was blind But now I see T'was grace that taught how precious did that grace appear, the hour I first believed, my change.
1: You here? You notice we have pentatonics for our war- warm-up band, so it should be a good morning. Thank you for coming. Good to have you here. Um, we're going to start by singing a song that we've done before, but not for a while. By the Gettys, uh, "Creation Sings." And you know, when I planned the service, I was thinking, you know, maybe it'll be a beautiful winter day, and we'll celebrate the fact that we live in this beautiful winter wonderland. And I guess that's true. Although when it's below zero when you arrive, it's not quite um, as nice as I I had in mind. But we're going to celebrate the creation that God has put us in. We live in a beautiful part of it, and um, so we're going to celebrate that this morning. Let me begin our worship service by reading and making a few comments on a very familiar passage from the book of Genesis. This is from the first chapter beginning at, cha- at verse 27. So God created the Adam. That's what it says in Hebrew, the Adam. Adam means dirt. It, it means mankind, actually. It sounds like dirt. It doesn't mean dirt. Let me get that correct. So God created the Adam in his own image. In the image of God, he created them male and female, He created them. And God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. And in the Old Testament, when you see the word blessing, and even in the New Testament, the word blessing refers to this idea of be fruitful and multiply. So fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. You know, God's original intention in creation was to create humans, people, that he could rule in partnership, run the world in partnership. And, of course, we know that sin messed up that plan, but this is his original desire, for his people to be fruitful, multiply, rule the earth, rule over the fish and the birds and over every living creature that moves on the ground. You often think of that word as very good, meaning it was nice, it was pretty, it was beautiful. But what God meant there was that it, it had form and function that he intended. So that the earth, what every part of the creation that he did, he looked at it and said, that is what I intended it to be, it's working as I designed. It's so, this is dating me a little bit, but many of you know the, the phrase from a TV show in the 80s, I love it when a plan comes together. Everybody knows what I'm thinking about, right? That is what this very good means. It means, I love it when a plan comes together. So this is the creation that God has put us in. So let us stand now, if you can, and let's sing together celebrating this creation. The first song is by the Gettys, Creation Sings the Father's Song.
0: Father's soul calls the sun to wake the dawn And run the course of time
2: You all made it here into this warmth from the cold outside. We're glad that you're here with us. Those of you who decided to not brave the cold and are watching from home, welcome to you as well. And we're just thankful for this chance to, to gather together this morning and worship our, our God and the Creator of all that we see around us. If you are new or visiting, my name is Tim. I'm the Senior Pastor here at Three Lake Evangelical Free Church, and we are glad that you're here with us. If you are, Visiting a couple of things to make you aware of. Following the service, we'd invite you to, to come downstairs. We'll have coffee and treats down there and spend time getting to know some people. And then at 10:30, our, our children's Sunday school will start downstairs. At 10:45, there's a couple adult Sunday school options. One, in in here, Eric will lead a, a sermon discussion. And over in the library wing, we'll have our final. Um, class and a a parent discussion we've been having. So we'd invite you to be a part of that if you are a parent. A couple other announcements to make you aware of. One is that next Saturday, February 4th, over in uh, Faith Church in Woodruff, they're hosting a No Regrets Men's Conference. So if you're a man and you're interested in that, we'd invite you to to sign up. There's information on your your bulletin there. Also next Sunday, during the Sunday School Hour, we will have a uh, interest meeting for people who are interested in leading our uh, practicing the way small groups. So, starting at, right after Easter, we'll have a number of small groups starting, going through something called practicing the way, which is the first month about all about Sabbathing and why it's valuable and a gift from God to Sabbath well. So, if you're interested in leading a group or just want to find out more about practicing the way in general, I would invite you to come be a part of that next Sunday following the service. Um, So a couple weeks ago, our youth went to uh, the district conference. And so to kind of show you what that was about, we have a video for you to watch. And then Pastor Ian is going to come and say a few words about that.
3: kids around the world we are here today at the conference
4: and we are packing 50,000 meals for kids in need this is a warning we're going to get real tonight when you look in the mirror first and foremost you see someone who God made the one who flung stars into space The one who crafted and shaped the earth and everything therein with his word and by his hand is the same God who made you. Districts has just been a way for me to get closer to God,
0: especially when I felt that I've been slipping away. I'm not
3: usually like a worship person, but at Districts it's made me just (laughs) fall in love with God again.
5: 4,000 people here to worship the Lord. God is seeing this.
1: Following Jesus is not always going to be extremely easy.
5: It may feel like a burden but
0: Christ is not a burden. God is who I want to pursue.
6: I want my entire life to be about Him.
4: Every single one of you needs to walk forward with this resonating deep in your head and your heart. Who made you? Why? How rare are you? What? How much would God pay for you?
5: Jesus. Just keep with it. Nothing better, there's nothing to lose, and there's always everything to gain.
3: I can feel myself growing closer to God with every moment that I'm here.
5: I came to districts this year an absolute breakthrough with my life.
2: In the midst of 4,000 people, God is there. God is all we need. He's all we'll ever need. And so we are never alone. And how cool is that?
4: Your weekend here at Districts will be more than just 48 hours hanging out with friends, having some fun. No, this will mark the next 48, 58, 68 years of your life. As much as I thought this weekend was going to be, it was even more. So I'm just so grateful for it.
6: See you guys next
0: year. Bye. Bye.
5: Yeah, so that was District Youth Conference. Um, So me and... uh, Ann Epler and Chase Kirby took six students to that, six of our high schoolers, and um, we joined 4,000 kids from around the state, um, all either in Evangelical Free Churches, or all from Evangelical Free Churches, or Evangelical Free Church-affiliated churches. So um, the theme this year was um, all about freedom. Um, The keynote speaker was Dan Leanne, as you heard him talking. He was an excellent speaker, super, super good um, he started out talking about what it means to have the good shepherd pursue you. The fact that we don't do anything for our salvation, that Jesus is the only one who, who does anything. He's the one that does the heavy lifting. And when, he, when we do come home, um, he's the one that celebrates with us. And then he talked about our value in, in God. How do we evaluate how we have value and how we value or how we look at value is that God is the one. Who created us. We are one of one. There's no others like us. And what did he pay for us? He paid Jesus for us, the most precious thing. Um, and then finally, he had a challenge for us, what it means to be, um, what it means to fo- follow Jesus, to be his disciple. Um, and I'm happy to report that our whole group accepted that challenge, that even though it would be inconvenient, not very fun, uncool, um, we still all want to follow Jesus. So that was a really cool thing. It was a great conference, and thank you for all those who prayed for us. Um, We're looking forward to going next year, and uh, yeah, it it was really good.
2: As we continue in our time of worship this morning, would you pray with me now? Father, we... And we're thankful for this chance to to be together, to come together as this body that you've brought together in this place to to worship you, to glorify you, to sing your praises, to reflect on and remember and be in awe of all that you've done for us. So that be true of each of our hearts this morning. We stand in awe of your Creation of your goodness to us, of your grace and mercy to us that you've shown us in Jesus. Would we marvel at your goodness and your glory and your grace? Father, we all walk in here with burdens of various kinds we come before You this morning in worship, knowing that You know our burdens, You care about our burdens. And would, knowing that You care, free us to worship You, glorify You, even in the midst of those burdens and cares. Father, would You bring comfort to those who are especially in need of comfort this morning? Would You bring Healing to those in our church family who are in need of healing this morning. You be with those in our church family who are hurting and struggling. Would they be keenly aware of your presence with them now and in the days and weeks ahead? Father, would we, would we praise you? Would we glorify you in the midst of life's hardships, in the midst of life's challenges, knowing, confident that you are at work, even in those hardships, confident that you will one day return set all things right. Father, as we sing this morning, as we hear your word this morning, would we glorify you, and would our hearts be drawn to you, or our hearts be changed and transformed to become more like Jesus as a result of all that takes place here this morning. Praise on in Jesus' name. Amen.
1: So as we continue in our worship this morning, we're going to learn a new song. Some of you may know it already, but um, I'm going to let a Bible Project video introduce the background and context for the lyrics of this song. But before we do that, I'm just going to another plug for the Bible Project reading plan that Pastor Tim has challenged us to do. It's found in the YouVersion app, and I've been following through it so far every day this year, and it's been really, really good. And many of the sessions start with these videos. This video has not been used yet, but I'm pretty confident that it will show up in the plan one of these days this year. Um, if you have any questions about how to get into that plan, I'd be happy to give you a tutorial after the service or during cross-training, or you can reach out to me during the week. Um, it's not super hard, but it's not super easy either. So, But a plug. You will enjoy it. It's a video, usually, not every time there's a video, and then you just click a button and it takes you the the passages to be read. It's a great way to read through the Bible in a year. So let's watch this video and then we'll sing the song.
3: If you go out into a desert, you'll see why it's one of the most deadly, uninhabitable places on the planet. It's dry, and where there's no water, there's no
6: life. This is the picture that we get on page two of Genesis. The story begins with a dry and desolate wilderness. But God provides a spring in the desert that becomes a source of life for plants and animals.
3: And that's where God brings together a man and a woman so that humanity can flourish and spread the life of the garden.
6: Exactly. And that garden spring becomes a river that flows out to water
3: the entire world. And there can be enough for everyone. It's all a gift from God. And this is great. Humans in a lush garden, but as it turns out, They find a way to ruin it. Right. Despite all of this water that God's provided, it's like they still
6: have a drought deep inside of them. This is an image of the human condition, how we're always thirsty for more. But more of what? Well, in this story, the humans want more wisdom to create more security and more control on their own terms. And tragically, it only leaves them more thirsty and suspicious of each other. And so they end up back in the wilderness. The humans have lost
3: access to the water of life.
6: And because of that, they can't spread God's life into
3: the world. And so God needs to rescue them from the wilderness.
6: Yeah, like in the story of Jacob. His selfish scheming ruined his family relationships, so he has to run from his problems out into the wilderness. But there he finds a well and he meets a woman. This is like Eden,
3: a man and a woman together by a source of
6: water. Right. And then through Jacob, God creates the family of Israel. And he invites them to share in his own life so that they can be his partners in spreading that life to others. And sometimes they do this.
3: But ultimately, they struggle with the same drought of the soul, thirsting for more power, more control. And it leads them down a path of violence and self-ruin.
6: And so they find themselves in a new wilderness captive to other nations.
3: All this effort to quench our own thirst on our own terms, it's killing us. Yeah, the biblical prophet Ezekiel described
6: Israel in exile as a pile of dry bones scattered in a desert valley. But, he said, one day God will pour out his own life presence, his spirit, to water the land, to create a new Eden... And new kinds of humans.
3: People who can spread God's life to others. Exactly.
6: And so this brings us to the story of Jesus. Right. And there's a story about Jesus. who goes to a well that Jacob used to own. And just like in Jacob's story, Jesus meets a woman. And he tells this woman that no matter how much water she drinks from this well, she'll always thirst for more. Then he offers water that could quench her
3: thirst forever. He's not talking about the well water.
6: No. What he's talking about is God's own life that comes through him to us to satisfy our deepest thirsts. This is why later on, Jesus says, let anyone who's thirsty come to me and drink.
3: This is cool, but it's also a strange image,
6: drinking from a person. Totally. And it's connected to another strange image we find in the story of Jesus' death on the cross.
3: A Roman soldier thrusts a spear in Jesus' side, and there's blood. But also, all this water flows out.
6: Yes, it's an image showing how Jesus' death is a fountain of life. From him, God's own love that would die for his enemies flows down
3: and out into the world. After Jesus was raised from the dead, we're told that he sends the Spirit into his followers. Yes, to fill them up with God's
6: own life. This is why the Apostle Paul said that when we join the current of God's Spirit, the fruit of Eden starts growing in us. Love and joy, patience and kindness, gentleness and self-control. People like that
3: can create beautiful things in the world that bring life to others.
6: Yes, like little streams of God's life that can come together and point forward to the beautiful scene that we find on the last page of the Bible
3: there's a new river of life
6: yes it's flowing out from god and into a renewed creation bringing life to all wherever it goes
2: We are without hope. We cannot do what you have called us to do. We cannot live how you have called us to live without the help and the work of the Spirit. The Pray that you would send your Spirit on us, that would you would empower us to live the life you have called us to live. Holy Spirit, you would. Convict us of our sin. You would show us our sin. You would empower us to fight the sin in our lives. We need you to do that. We cannot do that on our own. The Holy Spirit come work in us. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So in nineteen seventy, the the actor Harrison Ford, who you're likely familiar with, and in 1970, he was 28 years old, and he was starting to come to grips with the fact that like, his dream of becoming an actor was not going to come true. He had been in several minor films, several minor projects, but they just had not gained any traction, so he had kind of given up hope. Right? So he had decided he was going to teach himself carpentry, and set out to make himself a career in, in carpentry become a carpenter. And at one point, as he's, his career is kind of getting off the ground, he's still living out near Hollywood, and the filmmaker, Francis Ford Coppola, hires him to install a new door in his home. So while Ford is at Francis Ford Coppola's house installing this door, it just so happens that Coppola has a meeting with, with Richard Dreyfuss and with George Lucas to talk about a film coming up that they were making together called American Graffiti. In that film, it would be directed by George Lucas, it would be produced by Francis Ford Coppola, it would star Richard Dreyfuss, so they're meeting to talk about this film. And somehow, while Harrison Ford is there, the details aren't exactly clear, like Ford's presence in the house that day, hanging in that door, resulted in him being invited to audition and ultimately be given a relatively minor role in that film. The four only agreed to take that role on the condition that he didn't have to cut his hair. Right? That's how much he'd given up on being an actor. Right? He was willing to pass on a role in a film if he meant having to cut his hair. Right? But they agreed he didn't have to cut his hair, and the film ended up doing quite well. It was nominated for Best Picture at the Academy Award. It won the Best Picture at the Golden Globes. But even though it did well, the, the role the role was not a huge financial boon for Harrison Ford. He didn't make a ton of money off of this film. And so even after the film came out, Ford continued his career as a carpenter. But what that role in American Graffiti did do for Ford was that it started a friendship and a relationship with George Lucas. And that relationship would pay off in huge ways a couple of years later when when George Lucas would cast Harrison Ford as Han Solo, in the original Star Wars movie. And of course, Ford would reprise that role in the two original sequels, and then he'd eventually be in two more Star Wars films in recent years that they made 4,000 new Star Wars films. And the Star Wars franchise becomes one of the most popular in, in history. But that's not where the benefits ended for Ford and Lucas, because Lucas also would cast Ford. During the height of the Star Wars popularity, he also cast Ford as... Indiana Jones. And that would go on to be another four films, and those roles as Han Solo and as Indiana Jones, all because of George Lucas, are, primarily the, are the primary reason that Harrison Ford is the 10th highest-grossing actor of all time. Right? Which is to say that if you take all the films that he starred in and add them up, those films have made more money, more money than all but nine other actors. And if you get rid of the actor to abandon all the Marvel films, right, which are just kind of blown up the box office and kind of skew this list, if you don't count Marvel actors, right, Harrison Ford is third on the list, behind only Tom Cruise and Tom Haynes. And it's all third because he happened to be hanging a door when George Lucas showed up for a meeting at Francis Ford Coppola's house. And it's supposed to show that. Like, sometimes in life, right, we, what we when we really want something, right the way that Ford wanted an acting career. You can really want something, but it just seems like there's no way of actually getting it. It seems out of reach. And the only way for us to get it is to have some totally unforeseen, unexpected break come our way. That's what happens in a bad way, in some ways, for the chief priests and the teachers of the law in our passage in Luke chapter 22 this morning The chief priests and the teachers of the law, they want nothing more than to get rid of Jesus. They want him done away with, they want him gone. But because Jesus is popular with the crowds, and there's lots of people in Jerusalem for Passover, to them it seems like any hope of actually being able to get rid of Jesus is beyond their reach. But then they catch a big break. An entirely unforeseen break comes out of nowhere for them. From the last place they would expect. And that break then springboards their hopes of getting rid of Jesus into action. Their break is the same as, as Ford meeting Lucas. It springboarded Ford's career into action, and the, the break for the chief priest springboards their plan into action. And of course, for for us as readers of Luke's Gospel, as people who love Jesus, at first this seems like an incredibly unfortunate break. It looks like a disaster for Jesus and his purposes. But what we'll see this morning is that what seems like an unforeseen turn of good luck for the chief priest and the teachers of the law was actually done in accordance with God's plan and for God's good purposes. Let's read this passage together. We're in Luke chapter 22, starting in verse 1, we'll read through verse 6. It says this, Now the festival of unleavened bread called the Passover was approaching, and the chief priests and the teachers of the law were looking for some way to get rid of Jesus. For they were afraid of the people Then Satan entered Judas, called Iscariot, one of the twelve, and Judas went to the chief priest and the officers of the temple guard and discussed with them how he might betray Jesus. They were delighted and agreed to give give him money. He consented and watched for an opportunity to hand Jesus over to them when no crowd was present. So what I hope we will see in this passage is this, that the world tempts, Sin rages, Satan schemes, and yet despite all of that, God still wins. In this passage, we'll see like all these elements conspiring against God's Son. Conspiring against Jesus. We'll see outsiders, like the teachers of the law and the chief priests, conspiring against Jesus. We'll see an insider, one of his apostles, Judas, conspiring against Jesus. And we see Satan himself entering into Judas to conspire against him. Right? And yet, this, you know, what we'll see is right, that despite all those plans, despite all that scheming, despite all the effort to thwart God's plan, everything that takes place here actually serves to achieve God's purposes. That God ultimately wins. The first thing we see here in the passage is that the world tempts. And the temptations of the world are, are personified by the chief priest and the teacher of the law. In verse 2 we read, The chief priest and the teacher of the law were looking for some way to get rid of Jesus. For they were afraid of the people. It's really easy to, to read that first part about the chief priest and the teachers of the law. Just read it quickly and not really think much about it. Because like, we're not deeply familiar with the culture of that day. But that first part about the chief priests and the teachers of the law working together would have been shocking to the readers of that day. Because the chief priests were, generally speaking, Sadducees, while the teachers of the law were part of the Pharisaic movement. So the the Sadducees and the the Pharisees could not stand one another, they were worse than the. Democrats and Republicans, they just could not get along. They fought over everything. They fought over the resurrection of the dead and all these things. They were opposed to one another. That They couldn't stand each other. And yet their joint dislike of Jesus is so strong, it's enough to get them to overcome their animosity for one another and unite around a desire to get rid of Jesus. Here in this verse, like they're, they're working together. They're looking for some way to get rid of Jesus. Right? Which leads to an important question, namely like what is it about Jesus that made them so eager to get rid of him? Why did they so badly want to be done with Jesus? The answer is that Jesus threatens all the things that the Pharisees and the Sadducees value. Back in Luke chapter 20, verse 46, Jesus says this, Beware of the teachers of the law. They like to walk around in flowing robes and love to be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and have the most important seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at banquets. And further back in Luke 16, Jesus says, First, you cannot serve both God and money. And then Luke tells us, And the Pharisees, who loved money, heard all this and were sneering at Jesus. And all of Matthew 23 is one long condemnation of the Pharisees by Jesus. But it starts with Jesus saying this in verse 5 about the Pharisees. Everything they do is done for people to see. Everything they do, everything, is done not to please God not out of reverence or love of God, everything they do is done for the people to see, for their own status, for their own ego, to build themselves up. Everything they do is done to increase their wealth because they love money, or to make themselves feel important and and self-righteous. Everything they do is done for people to see. In short, the the thing that the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees care about, are the things of this world. They care about wealth. They care about power. They care about influence. They care about prestige. They care about popularity. And sure, they wrap it in a religious veneer. But the things that they care about, ultimately, are things of this world. They have been tempted by the world, and they've used their position of power to give into and indulge those temptations. They have seized the things that the world says are important. And now, Jesus comes along and he threatens those things. And so they have a choice to make. Are they going to follow Jesus? Are they going to follow the things of the world? And they choose to reject Jesus rather than reject the things of the world. And the lesson for us, that we need to be careful not to do the same thing. We need to be careful not to let our career, our desire for popularity, our desire for influence, our desire to have our people think highly of us, be careful not to let those things cause us to to turn away from Jesus and chase after them instead. Like All those things, they're they're false gods, they're they're idols. And Jesus said that the, the greatest commandment is to love God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength. But idols, they fight to take the place of God. Idols tempt us to love them with all our heart, soul, mind and strength instead of loving God. Idols seek to, to fill a God-shaped hole in our heart. And the world is constantly offering us things that want to take the place of God. We we must be on guard against the world the book of First John, the Apostle John puts it this way. He says, Do not love the world, or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in them. That describes the, the chief priests and the teachers of the law. It describes the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, right? despite their position as religious leaders. Right? They love the things of the world, and therefore the love of the Father was not in them. And the question this passage asks us to ask ourselves is, is that true of me as well? Do I love the things of the world? Do I prize wealth? Do I prize prestige? More than I love God. The world tempts. It offers us many things. And if we are to be followers of Jesus, we must reject the temptations of the world. We must say no to the things of the world if we are to be faithful to Jesus. So I just urge you to guard your heart. I would urge you to fight against the temptation of this world. To be on guard because the world tempts. But it's not just the, the temptation of the world outside of us that we need to be on guard against. It's also the sin that is at work in each of our hearts that we need to be careful to guard against. Because not only does the world tempt, but sin also rages. And sin rages in such a way that even those who are on the inside, even those who look like they are following after Jesus, can be tempted away from Jesus by the allure of sin. And nowhere in all of history is this more clear than in the person of Judas. Judas had walked with Jesus day in and day out for three years. He had seen Jesus perform miracles. He had seen Jesus do great things. He had seen Jesus show incredible love and mercy to others. And yet here we're told he decides to betray Jesus to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. This is an absolute gift from the perspective of the chief priests and the teachers of the law. That they were trapped. Right? Jesus was threatening their power. Jesus was threatening their influence. And yet, if they arrested Jesus, they would lose that power and influence and popularity because the people loved Jesus. So they were stuck, and they didn't know what to do. But then they, they catch this unexpected break, this turn of events, this change of fortune. When Judas, right, an apostle of Jesus, shows up and he says, Hey guys, I want to help you get rid of Jesus. And the reaction of the chief priest and the teacher to the law, according to verse 5, is what you might expect. Verse 5 says they were delighted. And they agreed to give him money. And it makes sense that they would be delighted, right? because it solved their problem. Like We know why they want to get rid of Jesus, so they're delighted. That makes sense. But what doesn't make sense on first reading, at least for me. Why would Judas do this? Yes, verse 3 says that Satan entered him, and we'll talk about that in a minute. But it's also clear that Judas himself is responsible. Judas himself chooses this. He doesn't get to he doesn't get to play the the devil made me do it card. At the Last Supper, Judas will. Predict this betrayal, and he says, "One of you is going to betray me." And he says, "Woe to the one who betrays me." He doesn't say, "Oh, hey, Satan entered one of you, and he's going to force you to betray me." But don't worry about it because it's really Satan's fault. He doesn't say that. No, he says, "Woe to you! Right, condemnation to the one who betrays me." Judith is still responsible even if Satan has some influence there. There is still sin at work in Judas. There is still sin raging inside of Judas that eventually pushed Judas down this road of betraying Jesus. That did not come out of nowhere. It's not like Judas was a model apostle for three years and then out of nowhere just decided to change allegiance and betray Jesus. In John chapter 12, we get this story where Jesus and the apostles are at the home of Lazarus and Mary and Martha. And Mary takes a pint of this expensive perfume, and she she poured it on Jesus, and she wipes his feet. This beautiful act of love and honor that Mary does for Jesus. But Judas doesn't see it that way. Instead, he says, why wasn't this perfume sold? And the money given to the poor, it was worth a year's wages. And at first, that sounds like a noble and somewhat righteous objection. But then John tells us in verse 6, He did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief, a keeper of the money bag he used to help himself to what was put into it. Judith, even back then, even at that time, had this desire for money, this greed that caused him to steal from the apostles' money bag. He had sin raging inside of him even then. And the way that sin works, right, is that if it's not checked, if it's not stopped, if it's not put to death, if instead it's indulged and it's fed, it grows worse over time. And suddenly, just helping yourself to a little bit from the apostle's money bag isn't enough. Suddenly, for Judas in the twisted logic of sin, as sin is growing in him, it makes sense to betray your teacher and your friend for 20 pieces of silver. The writer James puts it this way each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then, after desire had conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. There's a there's a progressive nature to sin. It starts as a desire or a temptation. Then when we indulge that desire, sin is born, and then sin grows and it grows and it gets stronger until finally it it gives birth, James says, to death. That's what happened here to Judas. He was enticed first by his access to the money bag of the apostles. Probably before that even he had like these small little opportunities to indulge his greed. But then over the years of taking a little bit here and there from the money bag, he started doing other acts of, that feed his sin and his sin grows. And suddenly it seems logical and right to him to turn Jesus over for Twenty pieces of silver. Right. It's not hard to see like this progressive nature of sin at work today. Every time you hear of some pastor or some church leader involved in some big scandal, whether it's an affair or it's financial propriety or it's some kind of abuse. Right, it's really you do to sit there and wonder, right, like, like how did this happen? Why did this person suddenly decide to to risk their their life and their career over these seemingly small things? And the answer is, it wasn't sudden. And no pastor who's been caught in one of these scandals was living a perfectly holy life and then woke up one day all of a sudden and said, Hey, you know what? I'm going to cheat on my wife today. That's not how it happens, right? Even without me knowing the details of any of these situations, I can guarantee that there were there were smaller sins that worked first that progressed, not that only manifested themselves in these big public scandals. That's why it's so important for us to be fighting sin in our lives as it creeps up. Sin is a a pernicious enemy. It, it seeks a foothold in our life where it can dig in and it can grow. We must put it to death while it's still in its infancy. The, the 1600s English pastor John Owen famously said, Be killing sin, or sin will be killing you. And he's right. If we do not put sin to death in our lives, it will, as James says, give birth to death. It will kill us because sin rage in us. Yes, we are redeemed. Our, our sin has been paid for, but we still have the sin nature in us. We still have to work at putting sin to death. Paul talks about this tension in Romans chapter 7. He writes this after he had been saved, after he had this amazing experience with, with Jesus on the road to Damascus, yet he still writes this. So I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being I delight in God's law. But I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. What a wretched man I am! Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Thank be to God who delivered me through Jesus Christ, our Lord. We have these two natures in us. We have our old sin nature and our new redeemed nature, kind of, as Paul said, waging war inside of us. We must fight the war against sin. Thankfully, it does not depend on our own effort. Thankfully, God has given us the help that we need in fighting this sin. That's part of what the Holy Spirit does, right? We just thank Holy Spirit, I need you. This is part of His role, part of why we need Him. He convicts us of sin. He shows us the truth that, that God's way is better than the way of sin. And He gives us power to fight sin. Because left to our own power, our own devices, we would never defeat sin. But through the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, we can, little by little, put Sin to death. We won't reach perfection until we reach eternity. But we can, by the power of the Holy Spirit, step by step, become more like Jesus, day in and day out. We can become more holy, live lives more in accordance with what God calls us to. But we must fight to put sin to death as it rages inside of us. So far, this passage, we've seen that the world tempts. We've seen how our own sin nature rages inside of us. And if that wasn't enough, not only do we have to fight the temptations of the world and the sin inside of us, but in the midst of all that, Satan also schemes. In verse 3 of the passage, we're told that Satan entered Judas Iscariot. Most commentators seem to think that this is not like some full-blown possession by the devil. As we said earlier, Judas is still responsible for his actions. Whatever it means precisely, what this statement does make clear is that Satan is actively at work to thwart God's work through Jesus. Satan is scheming to defeat Jesus and bring God's plan to save his people to an end. Interestingly, this is the first time that Satan's name gets mentioned in Luke since way back in chapter 4. When Jesus was with Satan in the wilderness and Satan tempted Jesus in an effort to, to stop God's plan before it really even got started. But Satan learned from that experience that like, he couldn't defeat Jesus directly. And that doesn't stop his scheming. Now he works through one of Jesus' followers to try to bring God's plan to a screeching halt. So of course, though, Satan is not all knowing. Right? So he doesn't realize that his scheme in this case is playing right into God's hands. And we'll talk about that in just a minute. But the big takeaway for us that Satan will not stop his schemes to hinder God's plan. Until Satan is utterly and totally defeated. So for us, as we live our lives, not only must we guard against the temptations of the world and the sin that rages in our hearts, but we also need to be on guard against the schemes of Satan. Because if he schemed to use Judas to lash out at God, he schemes to use each one of us. Nor is that more clear than in Ephesians 6, where Paul writes, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in His mighty power. Put on the full armor of God, so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. The devil is scheming. He, we cannot sit idly by his scheme. Paul goes on to say, Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against the authorities against the power of this dark world and against the spiritual forfeit of evil in the heavenly realms. Our battle ultimately is against Satan and and his spiritual forfeit of evil. Thankfully, Paul doesn't just tell us that and then leave us on our own. He goes on to tell us how we fight against the schemes of Satan. He says, Therefore, with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. So Paul tells us here how to armor ourselves against the schemes of Satan. What is interesting here is that like all the elements of the armor of God, all of them are, are a product of trusting in Jesus. Paul says, I put on the belt of truth, right? Well, Jesus is truth. He says, put on the breastplate of righteousness. But our righteousness comes when we trust in Jesus and receive his righteous life in exchange for our sinful life. Paul says, have feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. It is the gospel, the work of Jesus on the cross that puts us at peace with God. Paul says, take up the shield of faith. And It is through faith, that, faith in Jesus that our sins are forgiven. Paul says to put on the helmet of salvation. Right? Salvation comes through the gospel of Jesus. Paul says to take the sword of the Spirit. Right? We receive the Spirit when we have trusted in Jesus and His work for us on the cross. All that we can do to fight against the schemes of Satan. All of those things are, are rooted in our trusting in Jesus first and foremost. All our defenses against Satan's schemes are rooted in reminding ourselves again and again of the gospel. Reminding ourselves of the good news of all that Jesus has done for us. Which is why each week, in every sermon, I seek to to point us to the gospel. Yeah, there's a piece of that does it for anybody who's here who has never heard the gospel before. Or who hasn't believed in Jesus. But, but it's not only for those who haven't believed in Jesus. I do it for all of us who have trusted in Jesus. But it's only through the power of the gospel, of being reminded of the gospel, that we can live moment by moment every day. It's only through the power of the gospel that we can stand against the schemes of Satan. It's through the power of the gospel, Paul says, that we extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. It's when we've trusted and we remember that we are sinners without hope. And we remember that Jesus came and He lived a sinless life on our behalf. That He went to the cross to die the death that our sins deserved. We remember that by believing in Him, our sins could be forgiven. Our relationship with God could be reconciled. We could have the hope of eternal life. Like it's through trusting and remembering that message that we ultimately have hope of standing against the schemes of Satan. So if you're here and you haven't trusted Jesus, then yes, by all means, I would urge you to do that, to have your sins forgiven. You can look forward to eternal life. But for those of us here, and I think probably most of us, right, who, who have trusted in Jesus, who have heard the gospel, Make it clear that we don't don't somehow get beyond the gospel. Don't think that you've moved beyond needing to remember all that Jesus has done for you day in and day out. That the gospel is the foundation for standing against the schemes of Satan. The gospel reminds us that in our power, we are hopeless, both to save ourselves and to stand against Satan's schemes. So our, our primary response to the schemes of Satan, Paul says, at the end of this passage, he says this. Right? After telling us all about the armor of God, he says in verse 18, And pray in the Spirit on all occasions, with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. Paul says, right, our response to the schemes of Satan is first to remind ourselves of the gospel and then to pray. The gospel and prayer are both reminders of the last truth that we see in the passage from Luke 22 this morning, which is that God ultimately wins. But despite the world's temptations, despite the raging of Satan, despite the schemes of Satan, God wins. All that is about to happen to Jesus in the rest of the book of Luke, right? it was God's plan from the very beginning. And the sins of the chief priest and the teachers of the law, the betrayal of Jesus by Judas, and all the schemes of Satan, all of them ultimately serve to uphold God's plans and purposes. We can see this a few different ways. First, in, in Mark telling of these events, we read in Mark 14 chapter, or Mark chapter 14, verse 2. Mark writes this. Now the Passover, the chief priests and the teachers of the law were scheming to arrest Jesus secretly and kill him. But not during the festival, they said. or the people may riot. So they're, they're resigned to not arresting Jesus during Passover. Before Judas shows up and offers his help, they're ready to just wait. Until after Passover, till after all the crowds leave Jerusalem, and after things have calmed down, then they'll quietly go and arrest Jesus. But in God's design, it was important, it was significant that Jesus' sacrifice would happen at Passover. If Passover was a celebration of the fact that the blood of a, a sacrificial lamb caused God to pass over, to withhold the just penalty of death from his people. That's what Passover is all about, that the blood of the lamb is put on doorposts and it causes God's justice to pass over his people. And now, God's son is to be the perfect and ultimate Passover lamb. And so his sacrificial death being at Passover was significant. So God uses the sin of Judas and the schemes of Satan to accelerate the timeline of the chief priests and the teachers of the law in order to ensure that the death of Jesus happens on his timeline at Passover. Like guys, we see God wins in, in Luke 22, 22, where Jesus says, The Son of Man will go as it has been decreed, but woe to the man who betrays him. If the Son of Man will go as it has been decreed, God decreed that all this should happen from the very beginning. Similarly, in Acts 4, the followers of Jesus are are together and they're praying and they say, Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. And they go on to say, They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. People conspired, and yet they just did what the power and will of God decided beforehand should happen. Jesus' death on the cross, as much as it looked like a victory for the chief priest and for Judas and for Satan, it was actually God's victory. It was exactly what God decided beforehand should happen. It was through the death of Jesus on the cross That he won victory over our great enemies of Satan, sin, and death. And that should give us confidence and hope that when it seems like this world is spinning out of control, when it looks like the world is winning, when it looks like sin is prevailing, when it looks like Satan's schemes are working, we can be confident that God has already won. Because of Jesus, we can have hope. One day, Jesus will return. And he'll claim the full fruit of his victory on the cross. He will return and he will set all things right. He will wipe away every tear. There will be no more pain. There will be no more suffering. There will be no more death the effect of the temptations of the world and the raging of sin will be no more. When that day comes, Satan will be utterly and totally defeated. He will never be able to scheme again. That day is coming. So until that day comes, let us put on the armor of God. Let us daily remind ourselves of the gospel. Let us fight the temptations of sin. Let us say no to the things of the world. And let us stand with confidence, knowing, confident that God wins. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Jesus. We thank You for sending Your Son to come live a sinless life in our place, live the life we couldn't live, to die the death we deserve to die, in order to make it possible for us to have our sins forgiven, for us to receive eternal life, for us to have a restored relationship with you, So Father, if there's anyone here who hasn't trusted Jesus, who hasn't had their sins forgiven, Holy Spirit, would you work to convict them, to show them their need of a Savior, to draw them to yourself, to move them to repentance, would you move them to ask for forgiveness? For the rest of us here, Father, as we fight sin in our own hearts. Whatever temptations we may face in our own hearts, would you give us the strength by your Spirit to fight those temptations, to fight that sin? Holy Spirit, would you work in each one of us to draw us closer to God, to conform us more into the image of Jesus, to help us live more holy lives? Would you help us to say no to the temptations of the world? Would you help us to stand with confidence knowing that no matter how bleak things look at times, your purposes, God, stand. That your purposes are good and you are bringing about Your good purposes. We live confident of that fact. We live confident that you, God, win. Praise God, Jesus. As you go from here, would you go fighting the sin that tempts you? Would you go fighting the things of the world? Would you go confident that God wins? You are dismissed.